Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. If you missed last week's episode, you missed me. I'm Dr. Karen Hutchison, and I'm the new co-host with Phil. More importantly, if you missed last week, you missed the first part of Michael Miller's interview, which we're so excited to share with you guys, the second part today. So if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back to the website, listen to the first part of Michael Miller's podcast, and then come join us for the second part. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say the same thing because we do pick up right in the middle of that interview and it's actually with a question that I'm asking him and it, and it probably wouldn't make, it would, it would make sense that you could listen to them standalone, but it'd make a whole lot more sense if you, um, if you were to go back and listen to the first part of that. And for those of you who don't know, I am Phil and I am so excited for Karen to be here. As I talked about last, uh, last week in the, in the, in the part one of this Michael Miller, um, interview, uh, today we also want to, I want to just tell you guys about, um, some upcoming events we have, uh, in front of us in, in April and May, there's April 26th through 28th is Q Nashville. It's a fantastic conference. I will be there with many people who are talking about a lot of the issues that we cover on this show and a lot of other issues that are really, um, hot issues, hot topics in our, in our country here in the United States, but also globally, um, around the world. It really is. It does, it really does focus on a lot of the issues we're, we're facing in the U S but those issues really do have, um, a lot of application elsewhere as well. And so there's great speakers, great people there. Um, I encourage you if you're in the Nashville area or able to get there, um, it's, it's, it will be a great conference. And then if you're able to stick around for the next week or even come for the next, the next week to Nashville, there's also the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit, May 3rd through 5th. Actually, both Karen and I will be there. Karen will be speaking at a couple different uh, things. I'm going to be facilitating some, some breakouts in, in, some, uh, in this research symposium, which is on on Wednesday, May 3rd. Karen will be speaking there as well. And it's just a rich uh, time with people that are also super passionate about the issues um, on this show and, and are just some great people that you, that you would really, I know you'd really enjoy meeting, getting to know um, and learning so much. Um, it's like drinking from a fire hose sometimes, but, uh, it is some great stuff. So, and then upcoming in a, in a few months together for adopt together for adoption, um, is putting together another conference. There's no details out on that yet, but that that's a fantastic conference that you'll learn a ton from. And then for foster and adoptive parents out there, if you don't already know about the refresh conference, I encourage you to get to know about it. Andrew and Michelle Schneidler, um, put that conference on every year in, in March. They also did one last November in Chicago. And I think what I saw online the other day is they're looking to do mini refresh conferences all over the place. So important to um, really help each other and encourage each other through this really tough work. And I know you can speak to that a little bit, uh, Karen, the importance of that. So, you know, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about that right now. I'm so excited about the refresh conferences and especially the, the upcoming mini conferences that are trying to do the same things. It's so, so important for families who've grown through foster care or adoption to 
try as hard as possible to get connected with other families who have been through a similar similar journey. I can't tell you enough how many families come into my office and they're coming in just way too late. And in that, they're feeling isolated and they feel like they're the only family that is having difficulty or their child or their teenager is the only child or teenager that's having ramifications from histories of complex trauma or histories of neglect or just the reality of having multiple home placements. Um, And so it's so, so important for parents and caregivers to not only be willing to be a part of conferences like this, but honestly, Phil, one of the most important things that I can recommend from a clinical perspective here in the States related to foster care and adoption is that families and caregivers and and parents specifically, that they actually are willing to share and open up and be real and talk about the fact that all of our families, guess what? We are not shiny and we are not pottery barn sparkly. And those are the things that when we can come alongside of each other and connect and have real, genuine, authentic relationships with friends of other, excuse me, and have friends of with parents and caregivers um, who have brought children into their home through foster care or adoption. When we can have those connections, it helps us so, so much, and it helps renew and refresh not only our mind and our hearts, but also our overarching mental health and our emotional well-being. And guess what that leads to? That leads to parental competency, and that makes our frustration tolerance increase, and it makes our patience increase, and it brings us to this place where we do feel um, refreshed and renewed and restored and ready to take on these difficult roles of parenting kids who come from histories of harm. Mm. Yeah, no, and that that again, I, I think that it's 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 a no brainer for those of you out there. If you're able to get there, you're able to get to one of these conferences, or if you can't, to really you know make sure you seek out that that help and that encouragement and that support. Um, well, you know, today again we have such a great uh, show for you. Um, not, we already had some good content there from Karen. So I, I'm, I, I think you could already feel like this was worth the, uh, the, de- the price of the download. It's definitely worth the price of the download because, you know, unless, if you're paying, you need to check your server, um, cause it should be free. So it's definitely, definitely worth that and a whole lot more, but Today, we also have some bonus bonus content in addition to what Karen just shared. Michael Miller, second part is fantastic stuff. You're, you're going to love um, what he talks about today. He really, again, picks up where he left off last week and will continue to share some incredible wisdom from what he's learned um, making the Poverty Inc. and Poverty Cure uh, movie and series, but also what he's learned in his work with the Acton Institute. Uh, we also have some thoughts from the field from Paraguay. And, um, another recommendation from me, uh, today, it's going to be another podcast. Um, and probably, I'll probably even give a couple podcasts, uh, in the, in this episode later on. So you'll definitely want to stick around after the interview for some thoughts from Karen and, and, uh, me on, on the interview as well as those other segments. So without more from me, we got, uh, this, the rest of the interview with Michael Miller. You also talked in the Poverty Cure movie about the idea um, that the breakdown of family and Christian values have led to a lot of the financial collapse today. Um, how is that the case? And um, I know you're not going to be able to fully flesh that out today, but can you just share a little bit about what you meant by that in the in the sorry in in which in the doing the right thing in Poverty Cure the idea of the breakdown of family and Christian values have led to a lot of the financial collapse that we've experienced today. 
and what that looks like and the idea of the culture of trust, cultural capital and, and all of that wrapped up in the idea that um, it's not just economics, but it's also the idea of worldview and identity that is, re- you know, how we can alleviate poverty. Right. Okay. I think I, I think I follow you because I, I talk about this in different contexts, but so I think, I mean, I think it, so this kind of, for the first part, I mean, maybe it's two parts. The first part goes back to that point that I made with Asimov and Robinson's book, Why Nations Fail, which is a good book, but they make this kind of error of having culture as, you know, your salsa, right? Mm-hmm. It's, or with the way you wear your clothes, like, no, culture is deep, right? right. And, and so <clears throat> culture has, so the, so for example, in Leviticus 19, I think it's Leviticus 19, I think it talks about justice, right? You don't, you don't, when you make a decision of justice, you don't give special preference to the rich man mm-hmm. or the poor man, right? right? That's different from a lot of modern socialists. Oh, you give the poor, no. Justice means you treat both situations fairly and you make this decision. Well, this is a deep religious and cultural um, source that shapes the way we understand law. Now remember, right. so culture, right, comes from cultus, mm-hmm. right? And and the, the the deriving force of cultus is cult, is right. religion. I don't mean the occult. I mean right. cultus, cults, right? Sure. And so religion is the driving force of culture. Religion shapes the way you see the world. And so the idea, so part of this even goes to, even the question is fun, right? And I know you're following me on this, but like that secularism, is not neutral. Mm-hmm. It's not no religion, right? right? It's the cult. The modern cult is probably technology, right? It's a tech. We live in a technocracy, right? right. So we have certain like deep held beliefs that shape the way we we think, right? Which is a whole other story. Um, but you know, technocracy, egalitarianism, right. humanitarianism, plastic anthropology, liberty, autonomy of the will. These are these are deep seated cultural beliefs. And so market economies, right? Um, And so when Adam Smith talks about the brewer, the butcher, and the baker and trading with one another, Mm -hmm. it's assuming that the brewer, the butcher, and the baker are not scoundrels who can't be trusted. Because if you can't trust each other, then that raises in economics what's called transaction costs. And if you're always not sure, people end up not doing deals. They end up not – making business negotiations because the transaction costs are too high. And so it actually starts to slow down economic process. So in that, in that sense, there's a role of trust. Now, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book on trust that I think is very interesting that where there's high, what's called non kin trust levels, right? Meaning Mm -hmm. if you're not like, you're not related and you still trust each other, you tend to have high, much more highly functioning markets, Germany, the United States, et cetera, Mm -hmm. where you have low non kin trust relationships. You tend to either have family businesses, right? Or you have um, very, like, just not a lot of economic activity. Mm -hmm. So economic activity requires certain kind of cultural things. Now, there's another question about the developed world, which I think is very interesting. Um, And poverty in the developed world, it also has to do with family. So um, family plays a very important, I mean, role in whether you're going to be in poverty or not, especially in the developed world. Okay. So in the developed world, generally speaking, and I say this generally, most people have access to the institution of justice. You can get clear title to your land. Mm -hmm. You can register a business. You can, um, 
you can get your court case heard, et cetera. I'm not saying it's perfect. That's a whole, again, we could talk about that, sure. but generally, but generally speaking, right. That that's the case in comparison to the developing world. Right. Okay. Right. So like, and, and that's the thing people may, and I want to be clear to some of the listeners. Well, no, that's not the case. Be such and such. Yeah. I may agree with you, but relative to the developing world where it's like pervasive, where just nobody has access, it's a different, it's a different thing. So let me make that caveat because I think I can understand some of the listeners saying, well, that's not a very accurate thing. And, right. and that's, and they'd be, they'd be right until I say relative to the developing world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, 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 but think about this with family. The, 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 I heard a presentation on this and the statistics and family. If you come from a, what would you call an, an intact biological family? So your mother and father, your biological parents married, living together right. with that family and you're raised by that family. If you're from white, Caucasian white, mm-hmm. from that, that family situation is 8%. Okay, that's 92% chance that you're not going to end up in poverty, right? Mm. Now, we know poverty is always a possibility because there's always, there could be tragedy, there's sin, there's error, mm-hmm. there's, you know, lots of different things that can, can lead, you know, cause it. But 92% chance that you're not going to be in poverty and only 8% you will be. Mm. If you're from a broke, like a, a broken family where you don't have the biological parents living to get married, living together, but you know, there's a single parents or, or whatever it might be, or out of wedlock birth, whatever right. it might be. You, it's like in the, I forget the exact number. I got to get the, the number on, not in front of me, but it's like in the thirties that you're going to end up in poverty, like 35% or something chance you're going to end up in poverty. Mm. I mean, that's remarkable. Wow. Now, if you're from an African American family, that's not intact. That's a broken family. And, and by the way, I think it's like 70% of African-American children are born out of wedlock, mm-hmm. right? So this is mm-hmm. a serious cultural problem, a social problem for the United mm-hmm. States, okay? And there's re- – and, you know, and this is part of it is because bad policy has encouraged this. Right. Um, uh, but that's a whole – we can talk about that another time. But um, if you're from an African-American family that's in, in bro- broken, your chance of being in poverty I think is like 49%. Hmm. So it's one and two, and part wow. and, and the reason it's part of one of the reasons it's higher than than white poverty is partially because it um, because African Americans are about twelve percent of the population, uh, and they tend those families tend to be kind of concentrated in places, mm-hmm. right? And so it gets a little higher because they're more concentrated, whereas the white population is spread out a little bit more. So you may have that type of poverty in like certain levels of Appalachia, but generally for the population it drops down because it's spread out. It's not concentrated. Okay. So, but you have, you have basically a half, almost 50% chance of being in poverty. If you come from a intact African-American family, your chance of being in poverty is 8%. Mm. It's the same as a white person, right? Family plays a super important role. Wow. I, and, and so what happens if you look at, you know, this is again, we're topping another topic, but if you look at the situation for African-Americans, 12% of the population, like 80 or I think 70, 80% of the abortions. Hmm. Okay. Right. Because yeah. Planned Parenthood and other people are putting uh, abortion clinics down there into, into their, mm-hmm. into their, mm-hmm. into the, you know, down in these neighborhoods. Okay. And, uh, and then they put them in, down into white neighborhoods too, but they're putting them into, into poor black neighborhoods. And then those children who make it out, of the womb are oftentimes sent to failing schools dominated right. by powerful interest groups. Mm-hmm. And we often imprison their men. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I was, I gave, I talked about this and I had, a, I would give this, give this talk and, um, in the audience, I, there were a lot of people, it was a big audience, but in the audience, I didn't realize there were nine or 10 African-American 
pastors from inner city Detroit. And afterwards, they were sitting at a table. They said, come talk to us. And they wanted me to talk about what I'd said. And we were talking about these things. And they told me, there are many boys who are 13 years old who've never been hugged by their father. They've mm. never been hugged. So, they're, they're, so, so that there's also a sense of family breakdown that, that we see really powerfully in the United States. But family, generally speaking, is, is an essential part, not just of human flourishing, Right, but also of wealth creation, right. and I think this is one of the things that, that I, let me conclude. Like talk about this part that I want to conclude with that, that's so important from that Christianity gives insight to. Now, general, I mean, again, Christianity is primarily concerned with the salvation of souls and getting people to heaven, mm-hmm. and it's concerned with helping to create the conditions for human flourishing on earth. Right. So Jesus said, I'd come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you look at the, the Gospels and look at the letters, you know, Peter and Paul are constantly talking about how to live with one, be kind to one another, speak with one another in Psalms. Right? Don't be rancorous. Don't be angry. Don't yell at one another. Right. Right. And so and this is what we try to practice in our families. Not always very well, mm-hmm. especially when they need to go to bed. But um, but, you know, we're trying to say, you know, you tr- this is the guide is to be gentle with one another in your families. Right. Because the family plays this incredibly important role for human flourishing. So Christianity is concerned with helping create the conditions for human flourishing. And so clear title to land, justice, access to justice in the courts, fair trials. Um, ability to participate in the economy, right? Mm-hmm. All these things actually are part of the Jewish and Christian traditions, right? And so is strong family life and the the dignity and the importance of the family. Mm-hmm. And they're all actually mutually reinforcing and interconnected. And when those things break down, it creates poverty. And one of the, this is a little bit of a jump, but one of the things that's very interesting to think about is you can look at what the via negativa, like the negative way of looking at it. Socialists of all stripes find that there are three primary obstacles to their socialist reform. Their religion, private property, and quote unquote, this present form of marriage. Okay. So socialists recognize the interrelated, mutually reinforcing nature of religion, property, and family. Mm. And by the way, so do the Christian tradition forever. But mm-hmm. oftentimes as Christians, we forget about that. Mm-hmm. Right? And, but it's in, sometimes we need people who are opposed to those things to make us remember, oh, right. If you attack the family, you hurt private property and religion. If right. you attack religion, you hurt private property and the family. If you attack, attack private property, you hurt religion and the family. Because yeah. where is it that primarily religion and culture gets passed down? Not in the sermon, right. in the family. Right. And private property creates that space for families to live out their freedom and responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so the point of this kind of, in one sense, circuitous answer is that all of these things are, are interrelated and mutually reinforcing. Right. And family life is not – we're not radical individuals to just pop out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. When we're born into families that are – that are care that care for us that give us opportunity that gives education the chance of being in poverty is very low mm-hmm. and when families are broken then human flourishing is stunted right and when human flourishing is stunted it and ultimately has economic effects but our main concern is not economics our main concern is human flourishing absolutely yeah and there's there's so much to that and I, again I, I just want to point people to the movie 
and the and the DVD series um, Poverty and Poverty Cure because again these are all these concepts are so massive that there's no way we could fully fully flesh them out here on the show today. Um, I, there is we're not going to get to it today, but I encourage everyone again to pick pick up this movie and there's the there's great great uh, analysis of the buy one um, give one model in the in the movie that if that's something that you're part of in any way, I encourage you to watch it just to hear about the potentially some of the unintended consequences. I'm just going to tease it with that because today I know that would be a whole nother um, discussion that we're not going to have time for today, but I encourage everyone out there to, to, to do that. Um, but one thing I do want to talk about, given we are on the Think Orphan podcast, um, what did you learn about orphanages um, and the orphan crisis and their interconnectedness with global poverty while you were making Poverty Inc. and Poverty Cure? Well, you know, that's uh, such a complex area and, uh, I learned a lot, but I also learned, I don't know very much about <laughs> it, you know, so you could, I mean, you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on what I say here, but you know, and I, but I talked to a lot of different people, a lot of different organizations who work with orphans and I was able to just hear the, the struggles and stories and things that work. And, and one of the things we talk about in the film is about, about a couple who went to Haiti to, um, they were going to adopt a child. And um, anyway, it turned they, they they were about to adopt the child, and then the orphanage director said, "Would you like to meet the mother?" And they were a little taken back, like, "Well, oh, I thought the child was abandoned." Like, "Oh no, the mother's there and comes to visit every couple of weeks." And so they met they met the child, and they started to ask around, and they realized that in their orphanage, there was like like twenty six or twenty two out of the twenty six orphans had parents, mm-hmm. and they started to ask around other places, and they found out. About 80% of orphans in Haiti, this is Haiti, actually have living parents, at least mm-hmm. one living parent. And uh, um, this is the Haitian statistics episode that the New York Times reported this number. So it's very high. It's like about 80%. Of, uh, and we talked to different people about this. Mm-hmm. And one man who'd done a big study, he said, I did a study of orphans. I couldn't find any orphans. Mm-hmm. Everybody had parents. Right. And so what they ended up becoming is places for economic relinquishment. Mm-hmm. And so the, the situation was bad for the family. And they thought, okay, what's our best opportunity? Well, our best opportunity is to give away our child because if we give away our child, that child might get adopted. Mm-hmm. It'll get, he'll get, you know, that child, he will get school or books or she'll get adopted and moved to the United States and, or, or Europe or whatever it might be. And, and that they were, they were, they were, you know, to be with this couple, they were shocked. Yep. They, you know, what's going on now? They're big advocates for, for adoption. And they've adopted children, but they realize like that the orphanage system, I talked to other people too, said these are Christians, right? Who, what does James say, right? Pure religion is to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Yep. Right. So to go down and follow this gospel call to care for the widow and the orphan, they were going down and they were realizing we're actually creating incentives for parents to give their children away. Hmm. Right. And I mean, and you, you, your listeners and you people that you've talked to know more about this, but they, they create situations from reactive attachment disorder to yep. like family. I mean, it's, it's a disaster. And so this one couple decided, look, we're missing the point. We need to help create jobs for parents. So they don't have to give them away, their children away. So they built, they started a business. This is the business they could do. You know, they're just, it's just one business. They could do a lot of different kinds, but this is what they did. And they, and it, we talk, we talk about their story, how they built this business. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, they said the, the woman said, "I think we're caring for 720 children, right? 
And like no orphanage could do that. Right. And they don't have to have, they're not giving their children away. Right. right. Because people are actually making money. And there's one powerful situation. The man says, you know, like if someone said to you, you know, you're really poor. I've got a great idea. Why don't I take your children from you? He said, no, your reaction would be like, no, I, <laughs> right. I just need a job. Right. right? But, so, and this goes back, like this goes back to this point of subjectification and objectification. Mm-hmm. When we objectify poor people and we become sentimental. So this is the heart for the poor mind for the poor question. Right. Now these things, I promise, I promise all your listeners, they are connected. You're like, yep. what in the world is that guy talking about? Okay. Uh, but they are connected is that when we treat people like we start to miss the point. Like, oh yeah. Okay. I can solve this problem. No. The problem is not that the, the child is poor. The, you know, the problem is not the orphan. The problem is that, that the parents don't have the means to care for the child. Oh, not an orphan, right? And this begins to change the way we think. Like what would I want someone to do if I were in a situation? And so we stop asking what can we do to help and we start going and saying, what do you need and how can I come alongside you? Yeah. Right. And this is a different way of – a different – way of approaching poverty and it sounds so simple but it's not right and we're all guilty of it i mean mm-hmm. i'm not i mean don't i mean i'm not sitting here thinking well you know because we made this film you know we know like, right, we don't right, know. right 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 well, we make some of the same dumb mistakes Absolutely. And, and and i think it's part of it is just consistently trying to really i mean to be honest this so the poverty ink is for secular audiences mm-hmm. and i think in a lot of secular audiences like it right and, and i think it resonates because it's i think it's true but like it's much easier in many ways for Christians to deal with it because it's saying I mean, we need to think like a Christian about Christian love, yep. right? Christian love is to seek the good of the other, to will the other person's good, to seek after their relation, you know, their, th- that they can flourish as a human being here on this earth and live in eternity with God. That shapes the way we think. So yeah, the, or it was really, but it was really amazing. I mean, and, and learning, and, and the thing is hard. And this is one thing that I, the couple told me who in the film. But also other people who worked with orphans, like, you know, we've made errors. Mm-hmm. We do things wrong. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we got to fix them. And I, I think this is this is something that was striking to me that I thought was pretty impressive. And I, I actually see this across the board, but I do see it a little bit even more with Christians. And, and, it, and it should be more with Christians. I don't always see it, I guess, but I should be. Is we're not ideologues, right? Yeah. We're not – we don't have a system that we're like, oh, and this. We're, we have a – we should be philosophical. And what I mean by that is – loving wisdom. If we're wrong in our approach, then we change it mm-hmm. because we're not, our faith is not in our approach. Right? Our faith is in God. Right. Our faith is in Christ. That's the model and the lodestar. And he is the way, the truth and the life. Right. Mm-hmm. And we should be seeking after truth. And if we're doing something wrong, even if it's true for 20 years, even if we've been raising money on it, even if we've been doing it and we're like, you know, this is not helping change. Right. And to be honest, it's going to be really hard for big secular organizations to change because their entire Mm -hmm. reason of being is rooted in this. Mm -hmm. But as for Christian organizations, our reason of being isn't rooted in that system. Our reason of being is to follow the gospel. Right. Right. And, and that I think is liberating to do things better. Mm -hmm. And I've met people who are like, just like, solving problems, doing things better just because they were humble, which I think is really impressive. I'm not saying I'm humble. humble. I'm saying they were. And I, and I, it was super impressive. Yeah. 
No, and that's uh, the interconnectedness that you talk about in Poverty Inc. It's through that story of, of uh, Corgan and Shelley Clay, who are that couple down there. Um, I hope it's okay to say their names. I'm assuming it is. Um, yeah, but, they're in uh, the film. Yeah, the apparent project and, and some great, great work going on in, in Haiti. Yeah, um, super impressive people. Yeah, they're they're phenomenal people. I know they're good friends with Troy and Tara Livesay. Troy was on the show recently. Um, but... Uh, that's just some great work, but the idea of po- uh, orphan prevention, it's really preventing the orphans by allevi- helping to alleviate the poverty and, and strengthen their family, um, which are all things that we've talked about today. And, and that connectedness is what we're hoping people become more and more clear about on this show mm-hmm. as we've had I mean, I lots of our guests really, talk about. I'm sorry, just like that. I thought like when you say what you said there, I think that's the work that Shelly and Corrigan, I think the like one of their great contributions is to help us think about orphan prevention because mm-hmm. you know Corrigan said every orphanage every time there's an orphan it's a tragedy mm-hmm. and he actually said something like every adoption is a tragedy mm. because it you know and sometimes it has to happen because the parents die right and, and adoption is important and he said we're advocates they're you know they're advocates for adoption but it's a tragedy and this whole sense of like thinking of it as a prevention was I think really in, like that's one thing that was one of the things I, I mean, I learned a lot of things, but that was one of the things yeah. like that really was a, a, a um, you know, a, a shift in the framework. Mm-hmm. And I think related to that, that this is also the same, same point. I think that, that they really teach us is, you know, we, we, lo- we talk a lot about child sponsorship, mm-hmm. right? But what about the family? Right. Yeah. And this, and I'm not saying child sponsorship is bad. I, I don't know. <laughs> there's uh-huh. some that say it's good. So I'm not sure. But I, I, I do think there's one thing we could say is look at Christian child ships, childhood sponsorship, you know, child, child, child sponsorship programs. Mm-hmm. And how often are we focused on the sentimental image of the lonely child? But right. oftentimes we're sponsoring children who have families. Yep. So why are we not working with families? And this goes back to a deep principle in Christian, um, in Christian uh, social teaching. It's called subsidiarity. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's used more. The term is used more by Catholics, but actually, the first person to use it was a Reformed theologian named Johannes Althusius. And um, and this idea of subsidiarity is that those closest to the problem handle the problem. Mm-hmm. That those nearest. And so, like, oftentimes, I think we violate, like, even Christians who take the family so seriously. Like I was talking to one person who told me that, um, they were this, that one of the men was talking and he was saying, um, man, I'm having a problem because my 16 year old, I, he wants to do this thing in school and I think he should do something else. And I don't think it's the right thing. And, Oh, what'd you tell him? Oh, I told him, you know, he, I think it would be a better idea. It'd be wiser for him if he did this. And well, well he's not listening to, he's not, he said, he, and the, the boy said, you don't pay for my education. You don't have anything to tell me about it. Hmm my child sponsorship person does. Oh wow. Like that's, that's a problem. Yeah. Like, are we addressing that? Because then we're undermining the family. We're mm-hmm. undermining legitimate authority that God has established. We're undermining the fact that the, 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 this 15, 16 year old boy is making decisions that may be incorrect away from the guidance of his father, but his father's authority is undermined right. by, by Christians. Yep. Right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a serious question. And Absolutely. that's part of the heart for the poor, the mind for the poor. Yeah. Like we have to think much more seriously. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I know that, uh, 
there's there's so much more we could talk about today. One thing, as we're finishing up, there's a couple more questions I have for you that we ask all our our guests. But before I get into those, I just want you to you know quickly speak to the idea of you know a lot of people listening um, are either trying organizations wanting to work with organization other organizations that are fighting against poverty, or people donors out there who are looking to partner with an organization to fight against poverty. What best practices or, or flags should they look for when looking to partner with another organization? Well, that's a hard question. I mean, it's kind of like, what should I do? And I always mm-hmm. say, I don't know. Right. <laughs> and that may be the answer. It may be that, you know, but I think yeah. that there's some principles, obviously. But that- yeah, I think, I think the principles, you know, are, are that, you know, watch out for the overly sentimentalized story. Hmm. Uh, because it's, you know, we live in a kind of an age of, of sentimental egalitarianism and everybody's marketing, trying to get your heartstrings and, mm-hmm. and, um, be attentive to see like what, what's going on. Are, are we, are we using children as kind of a means to raise money? Uh, that's the problem. I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's so, I think, I think, uh, asking the question if people like what's what's their goal for exit you know this one guy in the film john Renaud noel he's a haitian businessman he says you know you you're supposed to come here and give a man a fish and then you know teach a man a fish and then and then leave he goes but if you're here 40 years well, that's a problem mm-hmm. like are are they have been have these places been working in the same community for 50 years like why right shouldn't you have had some success what's the participation um of people who are who are um, from the developing world wor- working in your organization? Right, like local participation. I think those are good questions. I think um, you know it, it takes time to kind of sniff these things out and discern. But you know, watching out for a savior complex, right? Right, and this is a serious problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're right and nobody else is right. That's another problem. Uh-huh. Um, unwilling to be critiqued an ideological bent you know i read i read jeffrey Sachs' book and i'm going to change the world like oh no right Right. um and um you know i think those are some things and those are the flags to look out and just a willingness to learn like there's an or there's a group of the work with orphans i've met and um they were hiring a consultant to tell them all the things they did wrong Mm mm-hmm and to fix their model. And they, I mean, can't tell me how many times they say, yeah, we really blew that. We're going to fix that. You know, mm-hmm. like that's a good sign. Yeah, absolutely. That's not a sign of failure. Yep. That's, I think a sign of success. And I think watch out. I think that's the other thing is watching out for like, you know, we're in a mark. We live in a marketing world where we're great. You know, we're really great and we're the greatest group and mm-hmm. we do everything so mm-hmm. well. And we're the, just, we use your money so perfectly and we're just so great. Right. And you want to support us because we're the greatest. Well, <laughs> you know, okay. Great. Yeah. Right. Totally. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about Absolutely. that. I mean, like, if you if you're thinking that, and then and like here the other flag is, are you signed on to the Millennium Development Goals of the United Nations? Mm-hmm. If that, if you're signed on to the Millennium Development Goals, that's a huge red flag because mm-hmm. that means you're buying into the dominant narrative of poverty over the last seventy years, right. which is deeply problematic and especially problematic for Christian organizations because of the anti-natalist position. I mean, the positions on life, right? Where right. some of these organizations, including the Millennium Development Goals, are actively supporting abortion, uh-huh. which is imperialism and neocolonialism. I mean, can you imagine right. having Western bureaucrats telling poor women they can't have children they want to have. Right. 
I mean, this is so if they're signed on to that and they're defensive about mm-hmm. it, I say run like the wind. Right. Right. So, and obviously we could, we could talk, talk a lot more about each of those, but, uh, I think those are some great, uh, what do you think? Things. What, what do I think? I think I agree with the teachability and then learning and constantly wanting to understand the people you're working with, um, is a, is a, uh, an essential and it, it's got to be there. And, and I think that that is something that is lacking in a lot of, in a lot of places and a lot of uh, people. And, and I, again, I don't think, it, I think it's good intentions, but Yo, it, it yeah, is a, yeah. it is a, it's just a flaw in reasoning. And it, it, again, it doesn't have that mind for the poor and, and it goes to something else that I know we don't have time to talk about today, but something you've talked about a lot in your, in your different talks that I've heard you give over the last few years the idea of, you know, there will always be human tragedy. There will always be sin. There will always be poverty in our world. But the hope is that if we can invest in the lives of these amazing people who are, um, in poverty because of all the reasons we've talked about today. And if we can invest in the people as human beings, as image bearers of God, the hope and the potential is really unlimited. Oh, yeah. um, uh, if, if we can create the private property rights, freedom to start business, rule of law, culture of trust, free exchange, as you talk about in Poverty, Income, Poverty, Cure. And I think that's really a good place to kind of leave off is there is tremendous hope sure. in this. Very much. Tremendous yeah. hope. But yeah. only if we go in as learners, if we're going in at all. And right. if we go in to understand and then to say, how can we pour into you as a human being, not just give you a bunch of stuff. And so right. on so the, can I say make a super quick absolutely, on that really absolutely. Fast. Cause I mean, I think, correct. You know, not correct me, but just yeah, definitely make no, it, make me sound way better. That's what I want you to do. <laughs> I think you're right. I think it's really important to have hope. And I think it's important to note, like, you know, global poverty has actually decreased dramatically over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And the re- and, and the main reason for that is because people became had access to global markets. Mm. Look, globalization is not perfect. Right. Markets are not perfect. Markets will not save you. Only Jews can do that. Mm-hmm. Right? Markets will do markets come with difficulties. Okay. But generally speaking, when people have access to markets, when they have access to the pond, right? Yep. As opposed to not just being able to f- learn how to fish, they can actually participate in right. markets. Um, they're able to create wealth and prosperity that, that, uh, you know, is, is almost unimaginable. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the development of the United States and Europe and Japan, you look what happened. These things happened because of certain, you know, institutions, people in Africa and, and Latin America and Southeast Asia are not somehow radically different from us. Right. They're excluded. And so there's absolute hope for this. And the result, this decrease in global poverty was the result of participating in commerce. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the result of aid. Right. right. And, and that, I think that's so that's encouraging. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that there aren't some negatives that come with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I give a talk on the cultural critiques of capitalism and there are problems that come, moral problems that, that arise with wealth, right? Just like there are more, and there's no perfect situation, but there's lots of hope. And, um, and, and I think what, you know, it's important that people are not just getting poorer. People are actually getting wealthier. Right. Um, and, and it's, it's because they're given access to those, to those, um, Institutions of justice. Absolutely. All right. So our last couple questions. Uh, The first one, what have you read, listened to, or watched um, that has most impacted your thinking on the issues surrounding care of orphan and vulnerable children and the issues we've discussed today? Oh, golly. That's really hard. So many. Um, I don't know. 
That's too hard of a question for me. Uh, it's unfair, I mean, but you know, you it's can totally do a, co- unfair. a couple. I mean, like, um, I mean, a couple. Uh, I know it, it won't be exhaustive, but just, you know, just an example, an example so we can understand what you're, what you're reading. <sighs> okay. I'm going to give like off the board answer. So on economics, I would say, you know, uh, Peter Bauer's work, um, which is a critique of foreign aid and how it politicizes economic life. And it keeps people poor and excluded, which I think is really mm-hmm. part of the prevention question. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, probably the mo- one of the most influ- – this is such a bad answer. One of the most <laughs> influential things on, orf- on orphan care is actually – I mean is, I, I actually learned most by talking to people like you. That's where I learned. So, I mean, I haven't, I haven't read a lot on orphan care specifically. Mm-hmm. I've mm-hmm. talked to people who work in that. Um, but – so, but I think one of the things it's going to surprise your listeners and, and you, one of the things that probably shaped my, my thinking more than anything else is a book, uh, called love and responsibility. Hmm. Um, the book is called love and responsibility. It was written in 1968 hmm. by a Polish cardinal, a Catholic cardinal in 1968 called love and responsibility. His name was Carol Wojtyła hmm. and Carol Wojtyła in 19 later in 1978, 10 years later, became the Bishop of Rome. And so most of Mm. you would know him under the name of John Paul II. Mm. And John Paul II wrote this book, Love and Responsibility, and he later developed into a catechesis called The Theology of the Body. And he's written works on letters to families. And it was this work about the dignity of the human being, Uh creating the image of God, his reflections on Genesis, the nuptial meaning of the body that we are, we have a meaning of our body, which is called the communion uh, with God and called the communion with, with a, a spouse and the importance of family and the dignity of the family, which is not a social construct, but a pre-political unit uh, is established by God. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds kind of off, but what, once you start to think about that, mm-hmm. it, then you you think about family and orphan care and all the other things so that when people like the Clays or other people talk about family and orphan care, it like immediately kind of falls into place because we're it, it that's really the shaping of the person as a subject. Each person is a Absolutely. subject willed by God for his or her own sake, called to human flourishing, hopefully born into a family that loves them and then called also to eternal life with God. Absolutely. When you get the person in the right context, so it's a really kind of indirect, I would say, but so what I learned most on orphan care is from talking to people like you and practitioners and from all of the things they've told me. Uh, and then the theological foundations and philosophical that's right. Love and responsibility. Bad answer. Sorry. No, it's, it's, there's no bad answer to that question that, you know, that's like saying, you know, give me your testimony. There's no bad testimony. It's just, it's just your answer. So that's, that's great. Um, now that was a pretty, you know, it's always an unfair question. It's like asking what's your favorite movie, that last question, but this one's probably more unfair. Okay. Well, I I guess that wasn't, that was easier. Um, that's cause that's where you courted your wife was in Austria. So that's, that's, Mm. that's why that's your answer. I imagine. Um, what one person has most impacted your thinking on the work you're doing, um, to fight against a global poverty, Care of our oh. vulnerable children. Oh, that's easy. Oh. I already gave it away. All right. Yeah. Carol Vatiwa, John yeah. Paul II. Okay. Absolutely. Great. Um, theology of the body. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. I have a story. And then 
I know it's good. I'm shocking all your listeners. Like John Paul II, what does he have to do with it? Um, uh, no, John Paul II, for sure. I mean, and then there's some economists too. I mean, mm-hmm. clearly, I mean, Peter Bauer, for sure. Peter Bauer is an economist who, you know, uh, who just was early critic of aid, just mm-hmm. like in the 60s and 70s saying like, this is a dear, serious problem, mm-hmm. right? And, and pointed it out. I mean, Angus Deaton, who's the Nobel Prize winner in economics, actually goes back and talks about Bauer's work. But Bauer's really important. Um, and then, you know, a lot of different people, you know, so there's a lot of different, but, but I would say the, the deepest is this. So a colleague of mine who was one of the co-producers on the film, uh, a couple of years ago went to a, a thing called a theology of the body retreat. Okay. And this is kind of like a teaching of these catechesis that John Paul II did is teaching that John Paul II did on the theology of the body, original unity of man and woman reflection on the garden and the fall and the natural meaning of the body. And he was there listening to the thing and, he called me afterwards and he said, I finally, I figured out what you're doing. <laughs> he said, you're applying the of the body to poverty. I go, yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> and and he, he said, they had to introduce themselves like halfway through and he told his name, Mark's his name. He's, he goes, oh, I work on a project that's basically doing this stuff in development. And the reason it's so, it's so important, it sounds like, is that, again, it goes back to the subject. Like, and this goes back to the reason why I'm at Acton and when really the core of what the Acton Institute does, right, is we take seriously Christian anthropology. What does it mean to be a human person, to be free, to be reasonable, to be embodied? We're not, we're not driving around in our body like we're driving around in a car, right? Mm-hmm. If I run into I say, oh, sorry, my arm hit you. No, I hit you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and our bodies have, are also reflected in the image, Right. Our passion. C.S. Lewis, the abolition of man, super influential mm-hmm. in, 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 in my thinking. Another philosopher named Max Scheler wrote a book called Resentiment, which is a so it's actually a response to Nietzsche. Nietzsche says Christians are basically resentment based who transvalue and they take the lower and they make mm-hmm. it higher. And um, Scheler's like, oh, that's interesting. No, you're wrong because of these reasons and the condescending work of Jesus Christ who comes down to bring us up, not to bring us down, etc. But he has a chapter in this book called humanitarian love as resent, resentment, resentment, morality, super influential in the film mm-hmm. in my thinking. Um, John Paul II, of course, the dignity of the human person as a subject. And this is what the, this is what the, the, the Christian and the Jewish understanding of the human person is not, is not simply a thing to be used. The human being doesn't exist for society, nor is the human being this radical individual that just pops out of nowhere. But the human person is a subject born into families. And that, I know it sounds a little bit odd, but those those are the things that, that probably shape me most. So I would say Bauer, Lewis, um, Ratzinger on reason. Um, what was the other one? Oh, Shaler. And most important, Foytiwa's uh, love and responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you gave a couple of books scriptures. in that too. So of course, of course the scriptures are there. Um, well, thanks so much, Michael. I, I, there's so much to learn. There's so much here. I'm so glad we have Poverty Inc. and Poverty Cure as part of our uh, arsenal to really understand these issues because you you know, visited over 20 countries. You went and saw this stuff a first person, firsthand, talk to people who know a whole lot more than you do, which is what shows a great leader. Um, you're not afraid to, to have people that are way smarter than you. In fact, that's what you seek out. And that was showed so much in that, in that movie. Thank well, you for your great. work. I had great. I mean, like 
wasn't just me. I mean, we know we of course our team, like team. of course, our team worked hard on this. Yes. I, I did some of that, but um, but, but you led is. the charge, and I know that you'll give all that the credit to the other folks because they did. Obviously, we knew the team, but thank you for your work. Thank your team for for the amazing work, um, and uh, look forward to continuing this conversation. Uh, hopefully, really, really soon. So thanks, thanks Bill. Bill. Super fun talking to you. Well, once again, Michael uh, definitely gave us a lot to think about. And, uh, you know, with, with that, Karen, what, what, what did he make you think about? I think the question, Phil, is really what did he make me not think about? There was just such great content in the second part of his podcast. And it's like I said last week, it was so encouraging and it was so challenging and convicting. And I think for me, if you guys have heard anything about me, if you listen to my uh, first podcast with Think Orphan or even just a little bit of what I shared with you guys last week, my heart is for um, healthy relationships. My heart is for systems and families and overarching healthiness within the family unit and within ministries and within churches. And I get so excited when I hear pieces about um, just the emphasis on the dignity with which children have and teenagers have and families and ultimately the dignity of a human being. And I love when Michael Miller was talking about the reality that we need to come alongside of the people that we're working with and the people that we're providing services to. And essentially it's literally asking them, um, what do you need? What is it that you need? And so often, whether it's our American mindset or um, our just whiteness, my whiteness of feeling like that I know what is best for someone else. I love that reminder of the work that I'm doing here in America or overseas, the work that we're doing, ultimately, it's what what does this person need? What does this child need? And more importantly, what does this family need? And I love that emphasis on looking at not just a child or a teenager, but what does the family need? And, and all too often, whether it was intentionally, I do think for the most part, it was not intentionally, we're overlooking those needs of what does the family need in international settings. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm going to turn, uh, one of the questions I asked on him to you as well, cause he turned it on me. And so, you know, he took me off guard if you couldn't tell, uh, in the interview, but, uh, you know, what, what do you think about the due diligence that we can do while partnering with, with organizations to really fight against poverty, to do any of the work that we're talking about on this show? I know, I know you've been involved with organizations overseas. You've supported internet, you know, international, local, domestic, and a bunch of other things. So what, what have you seen? What are things that you would say are flags that you would ask you, you know, you, you, you tell people to, uh, really kind of be looking out for? Well, thank you, Phil, for that um, (laughs) question. You know, actually, um, I was just involved in a situation and an experience and a really great one. We were at a a really awesome concert. I was there with my two teenagers and two of their friends. I won't won't name any names about which concert it was. And I might have said conference earlier, but it was definitely a concert. And um, in this concert, there were great things happening and and great musicians and and great vocalists. But in the middle of it, there was this huge plea to um, 
have some type of child sponsorship. And all four of the teenagers that I was with, two of them mine and two of their really good friends were almost in tears. And they were like, we've got to do this. We've got to sponsor this child. And, you know, people are walking up and down the aisles, handing out pictures. And of course, the pictures were of children who were not smiling and they were in clothes that were not clean. And it looked just like a really impoverished situation for this child. And, and, and rightly so, it may truly be the case. But um, I allowed those kiddos to get those pictures. And then I, I asked them, I said, let's really think through these things and let's think about and let's do some research about what this organization is. And let's think through, are they helping this child? But more importantly, are they helping this family? And let's look through these things. And I encouraged those kiddos, of course, my kiddos to have conversations with me and my husband, John Mark, but also the kiddos that were joining us at the concert. I want you to go home and I want you to talk to mom and dad about this and maybe, you know, get on the computer with mom and dad and think through what's the best way that we could help a child in Guatemala? Or what's the best way that we could help a child in Nepal? And so one of the things that Michael Miller said that I 100%, a million percent resonate with is just even consider their marketing strategies. What is the what is the overarching goal of a marketing strategy? Is it to provide family preservation? Is it to provide um, families with opportunities to learn? What is the overarching marketing strategy? And I think all too often those marketing strategies are pulling at our heartstrings and those heartstrings are causing us to act upon on an emotional response when we need to be thinking through things, not only with our hearts, but with our minds. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. And more good stuff is about to come your way with our thoughts from the field as well. Um, Brian McCobb, who's doing some great work down in Paraguay, uh, shared with me uh, recently, we were in Columbia together at the World Without Orphans Forum in Bogota, Columbia, not Columbia University. Um, and I, I just asked Brian what I've asked a lot of people, which is what, what is one of the uh, biggest issues you think that orphan care is facing today and how can we address it? And here's what he said. My name is Brian McCobb. I work at a children's home in Paraguay, South America. Uh, I think one of the biggest things we're facing today, from my perspective, is the involvement of the church. At a local level, individual churches uh, need to get more involved. I'm encouraged to see the involvement and the growth there in the ways that they are becoming involved. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking forward to see how they will continue to get involved at a local level, individual churches. Any ideas on how we can uh, best do that? I would say just talking to people, talking to pastors, uh, talking to church members, um, and allowing them to develop uh, different ways, um, find advice, ask questions of people who are in the movement, uh, in, involved in orphan care, in vulnerable children, and ways that they could best help. Because um, maybe the idea that you have isn't maybe the best way, there's somebody else, and so that's why it's so important to change ideas, exchange thoughts and, and uh, ideas. Well, thanks again to Brian for those great words. And, you know, Brian isn't just a guy who shared some stuff with me. He's also uh, a man who has engaged with this podcast, engaged with me on it, talked with me a lot about these issues um, down when we were together in Columbia. And so I just encourage you to get to know the work he's doing down in Paraguay and, um, you know, get to know him if you possibly can, because he's just a great guy with a lot of wisdom and uh, he's got a great family doing great work. Um, in another part of the world from where I'm at. So I'm just excited and thankful that I got to meet him and can call him friend. And uh, I hope that, you know, everyone out there can also get to know him someday. So 
with that, we're going to go into the last segment here, the Phil and Karen recommend segment. And today I'm going to recommend to you another podcast. Um, I've listened to a few of these episodes. I haven't listened to all of them yet, but especially for the foster parents out there, adoptive parents also, and people really who are passionate about, about the issues that are surrounding foster care and adoption. The Forgotten Podcast is, is something that uh, you'll, you'll definitely not only learn from, but be encouraged and inspired by. And so check it out. It's on iTunes. And I know that uh, it'll be something that you won't you won't regret doing. So with that today, I want to just sign off by, uh, you know, saying thanks again. I am so excited that Karen's a part of this. And I know that each one of you out there are going to learn so much from Karen as I have and I will continue to. Um, And I hope and pray and Karen does the same that we uh, hope that you will take what you've learned today. And use it to help you love orphan and at-risk children more and more every day of your life. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.